Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a podcast from Minute Media. Welcome to the Kyle Coster Show presented by The Big Lead. It is Friday. Let's see what's going on today in the headlines. Charles Barkley is lashing out at other commentators who apparently don't understand that it's roster construction. That's the problem with the Los Angeles Lakers. Uh, Congrats, Chuck. You're the first pundit to realize that that is the issue. It turns out that LeBron is a fantastic player. As a GM, his record is spotty. This is looking more and more like a miss kind of a sleepy quiet Friday afternoon as we get ready for the football games this weekend I think in my opinion and I've heard it said on a few podcasts out there in the atmosphere that this is the best weekend of football of the year and it's hard to argue because you get four matchups between quality teams the pairings this year are especially alluring and we're going to get into one of those later with My guest today, who is the big leads, Ryan Phillips, and I wanted to have him on first and foremost, not wasting any time. Let's get to it. A tweet I sent at about, hmm, I want to say 10 o'clock last night that simply said, Indiana basketball is back. Your response to that after the Hoosiers pull out a long awaited victory over the rival Purdue Boilermakers and look like a team that actually has some potential to make some noise as this season gets into its most important stages. Well, what was interesting about that win, Kyle, is they did it without their All-American. I mean, Trace Jackson Davis only played 11 minutes and scored four points. Uh, That's what gives me heart that maybe Indiana has something this year is the fact that they won without him. If they can put it together with him, Maybe they do have some juice. Maybe this is a top 15 team. Maybe this is some, because the talent's certainly there. It's just, it's Mike Woodson's first year. And, you know, it's such a transition from the NBA to college. I think he's really struggled with some of the aspects. I've often said that, that the NBA to college basketball is sort of like baseball to softball. The rules are different. The types of players you're dealing with are different. The types of schemes you can run are different. I mean, the NBA is far more one-on-one centered, whereas in college basketball, there's no illegal defense rules. There's no things like that where you can, you can run whatever you want defensively. Um, and he's struggled with that at times and they've really struggled on the road. They're, they are now 14 and zero at home and zero and four or one and four on the road. And in each of those four road games, they've blown it in the second half. You know, they've had a lead, had it. I mean, they were up 23 on Wisconsin on the road. Haven't beat Wisconsin on the road since 1998. I was a senior in high school. Uh, I actually checked the date. I was playing a basketball game that night in, in high school. Um, Seinfeld was still on the air. It was (laughs) for a couple months. Yeah. Um, And, and so they actually had like a 23 point lead. We're up, I think 18 at halftime and then just completely blew it in the second half. And, and to some degree, it's been a lot of his coaching decisions have, have sort of led to that, but the program infrastructure is in such a better place 
with him as the coach. Their recruiting is doing better. They, the coaches around him are better than they had under Archie Miller. You know, Thad Mata's in the room. Uh, you know, a guy who knows, knows more about college basketball than most coaches will ever forget. Or will forget more about college basketball than other coaches. No, I guess I should have said. But he is, you know, he's, he's doing a lot of the right things. And the other thing is he has players believing in themselves, which did not happen under Archie Miller. Archie Miller was the only voice in the room and he would beat guys down. And not, you know, Archie's not a bad guy, but he's more of a domineering head coach. And Woodson is the guy who will take a guy aside and say, I believe in you. I don't care what anybody else says. I don't care what happened in the past. I believe in you. And that happened with Rob Finnessy uh, Thursday night. Rob Finnessy is a guy who's been a much maligned point guard at Indiana. He's a great defensive player. He has struggled on offense his entire career. He's from Lafayette, where Purdue is. He, in his career, was 0-6, I believe, against Purdue. Every time he goes home, he has to hear about it. He busts out, has 20 points, a career high, and hits the, the game-winning three-pointer in the corner off a great play call from, from Woodson. And if you had entered that game and you told me that Rob Finnessy was going to lead the team at scoring, I would have told you you were insane. But Mike Woodson believed it. That's what's changing for Indiana basketball. These guys actually believe in themselves and Woodson will tell it to them straight. He's not a blow smoke guy. I, I remember uh, at Penn state, uh, they lost to Penn state 61 58 and trace Jackson Davis. They're all American only at five rebounds. Mike Woodson. First thing he said in the press conference, trace Jackson Davis has to have more rebounds than that. Did trace Jackson Davis pout or get mad at his coach? No, he came back and dominated Ohio state the next week because I think that coaches underestimate how much players want to be told, you know, the truth as opposed to, oh, no, everything's great. You're doing fine. And uh, so that's been the big benefit of him, I think. He tells them the truth. He gets them believing in themselves. And they're 14-4 and four right now and 5-3 and three in the Big Ten in the first year of a, new, uh, of, of a new regime, which is really heartening for Indiana fans. Yeah, before we get into the specifics of Mike Woodson, I kind of want to just lay out your bona fides here as an Indiana basketball fan, uh, unabashed, and also the host of Assembly Call, which is a post-game show. Uh, though Knowing you like the last five years since the last NCAA tournament, I can't imagine that job. I think on one hand, it's probably been fun and interesting because passion is so high for that very specific, I mean, you want to talk about a fan base that's engaged, it's Indiana basketball. And for them to kind of like fall off, to have the tools, really, you look at the teams year in and year out, like you have the tools of being an NCAA tournament team and the inability to get there. What is it been like to actually kind of have some light at the end of the tunnel to kind of feel like things are moving forward in a positive direction? I know that just, you know, just this year, uh, in the, in the realm of Michigan state football, like for three or four years, it was pretty bad. Uh, and it was wilting and it felt like it was dying under Mark D'Antonio. Then Mel Tucker comes in and you get this positive surge of energy. I don't know if Woodson's going to have the same level at, of success as Tucker, but it's certainly moving in the right direction. And I think what you said is exactly right ahead of schedule. Yeah, it, it's a breath of fresh air. I mean, legitimately feels like you're breathing different air when you're talking about the team. You got to understand we've done this show. This is our 11th season and our 10th year. Uh, we had the Victor Oladipo, Cody Zeller sort of run where they were number one for most of the season and all of that stuff. And so that was, you know, really early in our show and amazing. And then it's just doldrums since then, essentially. They had one Big Ten title in 2016 under Tom Crane, but it felt like the program was not on solid footing. Um and then after that, the Archie Miller years were just 
not only was the team not fun to watch because it was a slow tempoed offense and things like that. And really a slog defensively. His whole point was trying to make games ugly basically. And so it was hard to watch. And then there was no success. I mean, they, they had like several, like five plus game losing streaks in the middle of conference play, which is just, I mean, you can imagine like, there were times we would go on to the post game show uh, and the weekly podcast that we do. We would do, we do a post game show after every show and then, and then one uh, show a week. And there were times we would be talking beforehand about like, well, why don't we just replay the show from last week? Because it's the exact same problems over and over and over again. Like, do we really want to talk about the same things? I mean, it's disheartening. It's hard to put together intelligent conversations when you're watching the same thing over and over. I will say the day that Archie Miller got let go, there was more hope around Indiana basketball than I had felt in years, maybe since the day they hired Tom Crean, uh, because that was such a positive I remember that I was at that press conference and they hired Tom Green and it was just such a positive energy of like, we're changing something. We're going to do better. Uh, the day that they fired Archie Miller, my colleagues on the show, I did cause I was working at the big lead shout out big lead um, had did a live show just as the news broke, there were tens of thousands of people watching because they just wanted something positive to talk about after so much downtrod. So to have positive momentum in the, in the program and see it sort of consistently build is it's, it's, it's just something it's, it's almost like everybody's sort of bracing for the other shoe to, to drop at times, but at the same time, kind of allowing themselves to enjoy it finally. And I think the main thing that Indiana has to do that they haven't done in the past five, six, seven years is learn how to deal with success. You've got a big win against Purdue. Now can you come back on Sunday and beat Michigan? Or are you constantly doing the thing that happened under Miller where you take one step forward with a big win like last year they won at Iowa? Big shocking win. You take that step forward, but then you take a step back and you wind up right where you started by losing the next game. So it'll just be interesting to see how it moves forward and if Woodson can have that effect of allowing these guys to deal with success and move forward. Well, I would say on that point, I think that when you get an NBA veteran like Woodson, I think that consistency is kind of like a key word consistency can kind of mean like an even keeledness. Uh, this guy has so much experience, you know, and you don't expect him to get too high, too low. And I think that you won't have these dramatic swings in terms of like what type of effort the team puts out there each and every night. And I know that that sounds simple, but that's such a huge part of what you have as a collegiate basketball team is one that's going to go out there and compete every night and not beat itself. And I think that largely Indiana has been that this year, Woodson brought a lot of credibility when he was hired. What I noticed as someone who's not watching every single game is that early on, I thought that his in-game decision-making was pretty bad and probably has cost Indiana a couple wins. But I think that's kind of what's so exciting about last night. You mentioned the out-of-bounds play, and we're going to get real into the minutia here, but the game-winning shot was set up after Finnessy had just missed a three he was terribly like out of rhythm on that one. It looked like, and he's he not wrote, a good three point shooter. No, I think he said that he was shooting about 27%. It looked like he was a left-handed shooter the way he went up and it was a very ugly shot. He shoots right-handed sure enough out the out of bounds play. They run a quick hitter. He nails the three. They get a big defensive stop, not down a couple free throws. And there you are. It's kind of like, okay, well, Woodson has this in his bag to design the game winning play like that and got one win back from maybe the two or three that he's, if you want to put quote unquote, cost the team. So I think seeing that and seeing him make the right decision in a college basketball game, because you don't get a lot of opportunity to practice that he has a ton of expertise when it comes to the NBA and you can drill it and drill it and run 
practice all you want, but until you're in the heat of the moment, like those are the first times he's making that in a college game, which has a different energy. So I'm not trying to oversell it, but I think that's kind of part and parcel. Why the reason I wanted to have you on is I think that there's a chance that we look back at last night is kind of like, maybe not the turning point, but certainly a turning point if Indiana is able to be successful over the next few years. Well, and I think that one thing that's worth noting is that, as you said, Finnessy missed that first three-pointer, and it was a play run for him, again, coming up off a down screen and and basically curling to the line and catching and shooting it. And he was about a foot short. I mean, it was it hit the front of the rim, but the very front of the rim, you know, it was ugly. And again, as a guy who now, after last night, I think he's up to 31%, but going to the game, he's about 26% from the three-point line. And what did Woodson do? He went right back to him. I mean, that you know, it's, it, again, showing confidence in your player. And the other thing is they ran Trace Jackson Davis, their All-American star, as a dummy on that play. They didn't run it for him. They ran him, you know, and, and as, as we talked about sort of off-air earlier, it was, a, it was an, you go to an unexpected guy and the defense isn't ready for it. The defense ran under the screen instead of over because they probably thought there's no way they're going to fantasy again for a three. And he got it and he rose up and he hit it and he rewarded his coach. And, and, and the coach rewarded the player with a second chance and the player rewarded the coach. And I love moments like that because it just shows, you know, I believe in you now prove me right. And as you said, some of Woodson's decision-making has been, has been interesting. He's run, he's run the team like an NBA team. And, and there's a lot of times where the, like he, one thing he does that a lot of people do not like, and I think it's starting to change is he'll put the entire second unit out there together in college. That's not great. You got to have one of the starters in there to sort of get you your points or, or organize things. And instead of, you know, a couple freshmen and sophomores trying to run against big 10 competition, it's, it's going to be rough. He's made some decisions about, you know, uh, playing time because in the NBA guys can go 48 minutes if you want, but, but you usually see the, the top players in big games get about, you know, 40, um, but they can do that in college. You cannot play guys more than like 35 minutes consistently because they get worn down. These are not people who are professionally working on their bodies every single day. They got to go to class. They got limited practice time, all of that. But Trace Jackson Davis has played 37 minutes in multiple games this season, including in the non-conference, which I raised on our post-game shows. Hey, that, this isn't a good idea long term. You know, if, if you got to do that against Purdue in a, in a late season game or in a tournament game or something, fine. But, you know, in November, that's a bad idea. And so I think that he has to realize that he's got to use his bench more. You know, sometimes you've got to weather a bad run to get your player some rest so that he's fresh at the end of the game. It's not that way in the NBA. It's a different game. The offense is more of a one-on-one -on -one game like the NBA. And that's starting to change a little bit. They're running a little more motion and screens. You've got to work to get shooters open. They can't just stand on the perimeter and get a wide open shot. So there are things that in-game coaching and maybe a little bit scheme wise, he's still got to work on, you know, he spent his entire career in the NBA. He's never coached in college at any level um, or in any position, even as an assistant. So that's got to change, but the belief you're right. This, the little things like calling that out of bounds play. Perfect. The belief from the players, what he's selling to recruits and things like that, that travels, that all works. It's just a matter of getting those small details down. And that's why you have a guy like Thad Mata, in the room to help you figure all that out. And so I think it's a good setup. We'll see if it works moving forward. How have you processed the Purdue rivalry in, in recent years? I don't have the particulars in front of me, but I think it was a nine game losing yeah. streak that was snapped. And several of those obviously come at assembly hall. It's pretty shocking that Purdue was able to put together a stretch like that. I would assume that's unprecedented from their side of the rivalry, that losing streak, where does that rank among like your lifetime 
basketball disappointments for this program. Cause I have to imagine that's pretty high. That's, that's kind it's, of like a Jim Harbaugh thing uh, that he finally excised this year. It's, it's really up there. Uh, I think maybe missing out on Greg Oden and Mike Conley in recruiting when I, I think I was like, it was like 2007. And of course, Mark Titus who, who went with them. Um, but <laughs> I think that it was, it's up there, man. I mean, there, there are, you look back at, at certain disappointments, but nine losing nine games in a row to Purdue, Archie Miller never beat them. I mean, that's, he was there four years and never beat them. I mean, that's insane uh, to lose at home. I was at uh, I, I was at a Purdue Indiana game in 2020, just before COVID. And it was the game where Bob Knight came back and that crowd was as live as I've ever seen a crowd. Maybe the second livest crowd I've ever seen at IU. They were just looking for a reason to explode. And it felt like every time down the court that they had a chance to maybe get back in the game, they made a mistake and Purdue went down and got a basket. And it just, it was one of those things where it was like, Bob Knight comes back and you don't show up, you know, I mean, against Purdue too, you know, like the rival now that they don't play Kentucky anymore. That's the rivalry. And so that was one of the most disheartening experiences I've ever had at, at an IU basketball game. I, it has been rough. I mean, just watching, especially as Purdue has had success and started to, you know, been, been building on success on success on success. And they have a great team this year. They have a very good NCA title worthy type team. You could easily see them winning the title. And Matt Painter's a great coach. Uh, so winning that game after nine straight losses, I mean, the relief uh, for everybody in the fan base was incredible. But, yes, it's the worst stretch that Indiana's had against any team. Because the Wisconsin thing where they haven't won on the road at Wisconsin since 1998, that's not a rival. You know, it's, it's a, it, it stinks that that exists, but that's not, our, that's not Purdue. And so the Purdue thing is, is really, really stuck in everybody's craw and, and uh, really excised a lot of demons last night. So the other team that you're fond of at the collegiate ranks is USC uh, and primarily a football school that they've had success in basketball. Shout out OJ Mayo, Evan Mobley. Here's a theory for you. Indiana basketball is a lot like USC football. And I was considering that the way you approach things, because, you know, no secret here, you work for us. I'm tasked with trying to figure out how you approach fandom. So I was kind of like stepping inside your shoes one day. And I was like, you know, I'm kind of seeing a lot of commonalities between that USC football program and the Indiana basketball program. Are you buying that? Yeah, apparently the two schools I attended really like to mirror each other in different sports. I, it is, it is, there is, I mean, plenty of people have pointed that out. Just the potential of both of those programs is off the charts to be top five elite. You just have to find the right coach and both have struggled to find the right coach for years. I mean, USC obviously had it with Pete Carroll for, for years and basically dominated college football for however long that was and went to, you know, something like six straight BCS bowls or something like that. And um, won the Pac-12 like seven years in a row. And then he leaves and you just get this sea of coaches who fall short. And Indiana has had that, has had that. You know, you had some success with Mike Davis early on, had some success with Tom Crean early on. But in general, since about the early 90s, Indiana has failed as a program with all the resources in the world, all the, I mean, basketball, just like USC. USC, you don't have to hop on a plane to recruit. You can, you can recruit your 20-mile radius around your campus and have an elite football team. Indiana, for basketball, you don't have to go 50 miles to find the best, some of the best talent in America. And so they have all of that available to them, unlimited booster resources, as was seen when they paid $10 million, They wrote a $10 million check to get rid of Archie Miller. I mean, that, those resources are available and made a huge offer to Brad Stevens. To have all those resources and not the success to match it, 
is incredibly disappointing. Incredibly, because you know what that program is capable of. It hasn't shown it in a long time, but it's there. And so those two programs do mirror each other a lot. And trust me, over the last few years, I've definitely felt that of like, what are we doing? Like, you know, look at what you've got and you can't get it right. And I think it does tell you just how important, as you've seen with Mel Tucker at Michigan State, all the change that one coach, one coaching hire makes. Just the confidence level in the program, the excitement of the program, the fan engagement and fan engagement breeds success for the program because the recruits see that and they want to be involved. And it's all kind of and you get the right recruits, then the fans get involved. And then once the fans get involved more, you get more recruits and you get more money. And, you know, it's sort of all feeds on each other. And it's this it's this feedback cycle. And you just have to hit it right. You just have to get the right guy. That's all that it takes is get a right guy. And the engine gets turned on to a program like that. And I don't know if Mike Woodson's the right guy. Uh, I think there are a lot of positive signs so far. I, I, I am fairly certain at USC that Lincoln Riley is the right guy for football. Um, and I'm still puzzled by how they pulled that off. But with Mike Woodson, I, I just, there's a lot of great signs. We'll see if it winds up being, you know, the guy who can really get that program back to where it needs to be. Yeah. Finally on this college basketball topic uh, before the looming Tom Brady conversation takes over here. Uh, it's, you know, you know, it was coming. Uh, Stay tuned. I'm, I'm going to say some crazy things that will surely come back to bite me in, in the future. But on college basketball, there's been so much discussion from the college football side of things that the SEC has basically established itself as the level between college football and professional football. And the thought is that when they get 16 teams, that's kind of going to be like NFL 2.0. And a lot of people are pushing that, and I don't really – think it works like that because I think that fans rooting interest is more tribal. That's a long-winded way to kind of set up that. I think that the big 10 is trending dangerously close to becoming that in basketball, because you look at how many incredible programs there are, the depth top to bottom, it's far in a way the best conference. And I feel like it's far and away the best conference each and every single year. Yes. There's some good teams that usually sway things ACC's favor and has been for a long time with the, Duke and North Carolina's ability to always stay up there. But I mean, the big 10, if you look at how many teams are ranked, how many teams are capable this year of winning the national title, this is big boy basketball. And it's so fun. Like I see how everybody's processing sports. And I have to imagine that knowing the big 10 standings off one's head is not something that's at top of mind for a lot of people, but it is so much fun to watch it. And I'm kind of curious if you think, as time goes on, it's going to further separate itself as we get more into the era of professionalization as one league and one conference is going to rise and try to do the same thing in basketball that the SEC has done in football. Yeah, what, what I look at with the Big Ten is it has better coaches than anywhere. That, that's the big thing for me. Uh, you got, uh, in, in no particular order, just looking at the standings right now, Brad Underwood, Tom Izzo, Chris Holtman, uh, uh, obviously I think Matt Painter, one of the most underrated coaches in the country, cause they've never won a national title. So people nationally don't really know him, but consistently Purdue is really good. You've got Jawan Howard, might, maybe Mike Woodson's that guy, Greg guard is having a great season this year and, and maybe was on the hot seat coming in, but that, you know, he knows how to coach, um, the coaches, the level of coaches. And I think you can look at the SEC in football and say the same thing is the level of coaching is incredible because people want to go there. And I think with the big 10, it's the same thing. Um, what I will say is interestingly, the big 10 from the beginning of the season, people thought it was a down year for the conference. There are teams in this conference that can win a national title. Big 10 hasn't won a national title in a long time, but 
it also beats itself up every year. Those teams beat each other up. They don't get the one seed. It's very rare for a Big Ten team to get a one seed because they are going to suffer losses playing against good competition. It's the same as, you know, they, they don't get to, you know, it's, it's the same as sort of the SEC is there's only one, one or there's only one or two teams coming out of that conference every year, and they probably have five of the seven best teams almost every year in football. So I do think that the Big Ten has sort of separated itself as the best uh, as the best conference. Uh, the thing that's going to be interesting to keep is is in the future, do players still want to go to Big Ten schools with all the NIL stuff going on? And also, let's face it, the weather isn't the best in the Big Ten, and that has a lot to do with guys' decisions. And as kids start going to these, you know, basketball academies, essentially, and traveling all over the country and don't worry about staying home as much as they did. I mean, back when I was a kid, and, and growing up is these guys went to the, the school closest to their house, you know, the big school closest to their house is where they went. Now kids have no compunction about that. They're going everywhere. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if another conference doesn't start taking some of these top players. But as now, I, I think the big 10 has separated itself. And I think it's separate. It's been separated for years now. It is easily the best uh, conference. The biggest competition I would see would be just the sec. If it's doing yeah. it for football, then why not also do it for basketball? You consider a program like Florida, which had multiple national championships, like they could just as easily retool and, and get to be like a, a top, top of mind up there. All right, I'm going to do it. I have noticed that very few people are talking about the fact that this could be Tom Brady's last football game this weekend. And it's perilous and it's dangerous to even suggest such a thing. The one time I ever tried to do it in my life was before the Patriots Chiefs game. Uh, in the AFC championship game, when I said, I think Tom Brady and the, in the Patriots run is over. I was doomed by a, a defensive penalty uh, against being proven correctly. And we see that what Tom Brady has done following his departure and his breakup with Bill Belichick winning the Super Bowl last year, he's 44 years old. Here's why I think it's not so crazy to believe that we're seeing the final 60 minutes of football from Tom Brady. First of all, I think there's a really good chance the Rams win this game. Very big on Matt Stafford. I'm not crazy about what's going on with the Buccaneers offensive line. That seems really scary, and it seems particularly dangerous going against the most formidable front four in the league. I mean, you got a guy named Aaron Donald there. Good luck. That seems terrifying to me. And if it does result and an early exit for Tom Brady. This year has been a real challenge for him. There's no denying that. Last year seemed kind of fun. It was the first time. It was the ultimate screw you year. He had all the energy. This year has been full of controversy. The Antonio Brown thing, the on-the-field problem of not having offensive weapons that he really believes in. They've been hit by a spate of injuries. My thought is we've been hearing more and more from Tom Brady publicly, right? He used to kind of be this cloistered person who was only doing football things very rarely showing you that other side of him. I can't remember a year where he's been more open and I don't know. I mean, let's just say that the Rams win and we're entering next year. Tom Brady's going to be 45. The Buccaneers are probably not well suited to win the Super Bowl next year. I really don't think that they are. Like, I think that there's real problems there as other teams begin to ascend, as other quarterbacks prove that they are more valuable than Tom Brady, not maybe in the winning stance, but going out there, you give me Josh Allen or Tom Brady to win a game. I'm taking Josh Allen's talent. So Ryan, if 100% is Tom Brady is playing his last game this weekend and zero is, 
get out of here. I'm ashamed to even be associated with this content. What's your meter at? Uh, well, I'm going to, I'm going to take a cop out here and say, I think it depends on if they win. If they lose, I think he's coming back. If they win the Super Bowl this year, I could absolutely see him retiring on back-to-back championships. Um, I think if they lose here, knowing, you know, that they're injured and have really struggled, he might want to have one more good run at it next year. Um, but I certainly see what you're saying. I, I, I think that it, this year has been a struggle. But let's remember, I mean, he's about – I think Rodgers is a little ahead of him now, but for pretty much all year he's been even odds for the MVP pretty much. Uh, with, with anybody else. And so it's not like he's falling off. It's not Peyton Manning's last year, you know? And so as long as, as long as Brady thinks that he can do it, uh, I think he's going to keep doing it. I, I, but again, I could see if they triumph and they win the Super Bowl, I could see him stepping away. Uh, I think if they lost in the divisional round, I, I think that would just motivate him to come back with everybody. Really? See, that's, that's interesting. And I say that because I've been, you know, when I, make some when I make calls around the industry or check in with people, one of the things that I've kind of been bringing up is the idea of Tom Brady. Like I'm not going to get Tom Brady on the phone, but I'm talking to enough people who are talking to him or talking to people who have talked about Tom Brady. You know, it's kind of like get the thought process. And I just, you know, I hate to sound like Trump here, but it is something that you're hearing more and more behind the scenes uh, of people saying like, Hey, don't discount this. Or I'm just kind of sorting, sort of getting that vibe. And it's so interesting because I would argue that there's probably a growing portion of people who feel that way, but just are too terrified or don't want to go out there and say it and be the next person where, Hey, you said Tom Brady was done or he was going to walk away. And that was four Super Bowls ago. I mean, we saw what happened with Max Kellerman. He's still eating that clip on a daily basis, but I really do think that behind the scenes, there's some people who at least have to entertain the notion that eventually it has to be it. And it doesn't have to just be one reason. Maybe he's decided like I've done enough and going out on that loss well, that is terrible. Like there's no guarantee that I'm ever going to get to that spot again. Maybe I go out when I was at the top of my game and I don't want to regress and maybe be forced to go down the road when I'm 47 years old and I haven't made the playoffs for two years, because I think that that ultimately would kind of be a sad thing. I think from a fan seeing Tom Brady wilt a little bit and be unable to do it anymore would kind of be a bummer. Yeah. And I, I agree. I, look, I mean, he certainly is still at the peak professionally. I mean, he is, it, it's, it's unbelievable to say that, but he's, you know, putting up numbers as good as he ever has. And, and part of that is, you know, he's got a team around him that matches his talent level. And that's something he didn't have in his last few years in new England. And probably why a lot of people thought he was on his way down. The receiving core wasn't great. The offensive line had holes. Um, and that was what he wanted was them to improve that. And when they wouldn't, he said, all right, well, I'll go somewhere else and we'll just part ways here. But I will say, I, I, I just think he's so competitive that I think if there was a, a really bad loss to end things, I think that would not be the way he wanted to go. Maybe it is. I mean, maybe he's, he would just say, hey, you know what? Bad year. Guys got injured. We knew we could have won it without that. Um, but it's time to walk away. I, I don't think that's the case, though. I think he's going to want to go out a winner or at least try to and, and have one more, maybe one more glorious run and see if he could do it. Because let's face it, they dominated that Super Bowl last year. And looked like it was the start of a, you know, at least a mini dynasty, as much as a dynasty as you can have with a 44 year old quarterback. But um, he just looks like he looks great. He actually looks younger than he did in his mid thirties. Like he just, I just don't, 
I think I legitimately think that Brady deep down thinks he can play till he's 50. I don't think he will, but I think he thinks that. And it's hard to argue with him watching him play now. So I would be shocked if he hung it up. Uh, I, I would understand it. I would have understand it if he hung it up five years ago, you know, just with the beating he takes. But um, it's an interesting take, Kyle. And, and look, when it ultimately does happen, I'll give you credit for it. I promise, buddy. Well, I'm okay. I'm, I'm going to want that credit because I know uh, that it's probably not going to work out for me. I just kind of think that our brains have been a little bit messed with be, by the routineness of a 44 year old looking like this. Like we're taking it for granted. Like he's still well, is then Aaron Rodgers is following it up by looking year. as good as he does in yes. his late thirties. Absolutely. And I, I'm just, I guess I would just point out that Aaron Rodgers is like six years younger uh, yeah. than Tom Brady. Like we don't think that Aaron Rodgers is going to play for six more years. Like it's not inconceivable that a human being and an athlete is going to walk away from the most physically demanding sport in, in the world at age 45. But again, I just wanted to get that on the record and note that while I'm not predicting it's going to happen, I'm giving it like a 25% chance because I really wouldn't be shocked uh, to the level. I'm sure the larger sports world outside would be our last topic and it's going to be a quick one it's on the media side and i mentioned on monday's podcast i believe that we are all in the dallas cowboys business and the dallas cowboys are the rising tide that lifts all boats and a week's worth of ratings not just from the game but ancillary things on the heels of it prove that without a doubt 50 million people watched the game on sunday on CBS. And then we got news that get up had its best day ever. That first take had its best day ever. That first things first had its second best day ever that undisputed had its best day ever. And the herd had its best day ever. And I really just kind of wanted to circle that date on the calendar is saying that is a monumental achievement of content because think that there's been a lot of Super Bowls that have taken place while all that stuff's been going on. There's been a ton of sporting events. There's been a ton of interesting things, wild things, unpredictable things, things involving high profile fan bases and controversy. And never once, never once did it draw more interest from the masses than an opening round playoff game between the Dallas Cowboys and San Francisco Giants. So my question to you is, Dallas Cowboys, are they the premier topic in all of sports when it comes to garnering eyeballs? And if not, what is? Yeah, they, they are. And it, um, you could argue that maybe the Yankees measure that level as far as fandom, but the Yankees play 162 games. And so that gets spread out. The entrance gets spread out over a whole year. The Cowboys are number one, and you could just look at our industry. I mean, Cowboys are number one. You know what, you know what garners a lot of eyes? Texas football, too. But, you know, those are, those are kind of adjacent to each other. And Texas hasn't been good for a while. When there's expectations on the Cowboys and they fail, there will be lots of eyeballs on whatever you do about that. The fan interest is through the roof. And I think that that is the premier brand in, in, in all of sports. And we see it in our traffic when we write about the Cowboys. It's just a different level and the level of engagement. It's that and, and fans fighting each other in the stands are the things that draw the most eyeballs. Let's be real. And uh, the, but yeah, the Cowboys, it, it's stunning just how I would say when they were down a little bit, it, it, it was less. So, you know, when they weren't making the playoffs, but when they have a good team and especially when that good team falls short, man, the fan interest is off the charts. I'm not so sure that Cowboys schadenfreude 
is any different than fan fights. It's kind of the same gawker mentality, rubbernecking. I think that we all kind of enjoy seeing that happen. I guess for me, what, what was enlightening about this is like, yeah, we kind of suffer through them as the first topic on get up every single day, even when they're not good and when they're not relevant, but damn, when they are the biggest soap opera in sports, no one delivers like them. We can see that because I would say that the Lakers might be up there on the list as well, but we're kind of in the midst of what could be considered a Lakers meltdown. We have high profile personalities feuding. We have a lot of friction. We have lackluster play. It involves LeBron James, who is maybe the number one athlete in terms of clicks. And it still is, seems like kind of a drop in the puddle to what's going on with the Cowboys and what will continue to go on with the Cowboys. And I think the most instructive thing for me too, and we can close on this, is that if you want to be the premier talking head in the industry, you have had to come up with a thing as it relates to the Dallas Cowboys. Both Stephen A. Smith and Skip Bayless have bits they're doing centering around this franchise. Steven is constantly delighting in their losses, donning a cowboy hat, laughing in their face, where Skip Bayless is posting, I don't even, I mean, horrifying footage of like his lip quivering uh, and, and his eyes trying to water. It, it's, but it's all performative and it's all wild, but it's like they have attached themselves to that vessel because they know that's exactly what people want. And that's where you see their broadest and most outlandish work because they understand that the combination of those factors is what's really going to drive the metrics. Yeah. And, and, and those performative things are something that even though you know they're coming and they're very repetitive, you still watch it every time, every single and they always time. Deliver. <laughs> they do. They do. So yeah, I would agree. It's, it's, certainly the top brand and 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 one that we all pay attention to even as if we're not fans and that fans certainly are all very heavily involved with yeah and the best thing about it too is that it's going to continue uh jerry jones i feel like he's only going to get more erratic as he gets old the questions around Dak prescott are going to begin to grow like if he goes a few more years and he's not a winner very awesome. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, it's really good for business. I think this is the exact level that we need the Cowboys to be. I'm not so sure we're going to get more out of them if they were like an NFC championship team that lost there. Like I think losing at this round makes it more fun and more of a disaster as opposed to, oh, maybe they can't just win the big one. So I think we're in a sweet spot. If they could keep doing this every year, that would keep us all fat and healthy. All right, I'm Kyle Coster. That's been my show on a Friday. My guest has been Ryan Phillips. He writes for The Big Lead. He podcasts at Best of Seven. He's a co-host on Indiana Basketball's Assembly Hall. He's feeling good about the win. He's feeling confident that Tom Brady is going to play forever. And just like everybody else, he loves to say, how about them Cowboys? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.